Oh God, we pray that you'd give us eyes to see the power and the wonder of Jesus in this passage. Lord, for many of us, this is a familiar passage, so Lord, give us even a fresh experience with it. Lord, help us to encounter the magnitude of what Jesus went through in order to save us and redeem us. Lord, I pray as we learn more about who Christ is, Lord, I pray our hearts would be filled with with thanksgiving, Lord, that would change and alter the way that we live, the way that we view you and the gospel. So, Lord, we pray that you'd be unleashed today in this room. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Martin Luther said that to act against one's conscience is neither safe nor right. Give you a story from my personal life just to illustrate that point. I grew up in a family where uh, my mom was really into animals. She loved dogs and, and cats. She's on the spectrum of, of believing that animals have souls, okay? So she's over there. I don't want to get into a theological debate because I know some of you believe that too. But she was always wanting a dog or a cat growing up. And it wasn't until I was 16 years old that my dad finally caved and gave her a cat. We called this cat Kitty, okay, a very creative name. <clears throat> So we have this cat, and um, we, we've had this cat for a few months uh, when I was 16, and, and I just got my license, and it was my mom's birthday. And I woke up that morning, and I thought, oh my goodness, I forgot to get my mom a birthday present. And my dad took my mom out for kind of a breakfast celebration for her birthday, and I knew I had like an hour to go out, get a gift, come back, and kind of save face. And so, you know, being 16, I, I get into my car, and I put the car in reverse, and I go down my driveway, and I hear this, boop, boop. and yeah, I you know, put the car in park, I, I get out, and I'm thinking, what did I just hit? Like, is that a, a basketball or something? Like, so I, I look out, and, and I, it was Kitty. Kitty was limping off the driveway and just kind of falls into the front yard. And I, I look at her, and I'm like, oh my goodness, like, this is my mom's cat. You know, this is her love. And I go over, and I'm in this, this, this pickle. Big dilemma here. I, you know, the cat's breathing, but it's irregular, okay? Needs some attention. And yet, I've got, like, now probably 50 minutes to go out and get a present and save face. And my conscience was telling me, Chris, you've got to take care of this cat. Like, this is your mom's love. Like, how are you going to explain this? And so, for me, being a very immature 16-year-old, sinner saved by grace, I leave the cat in the yard, get in my car, go out, and I think I bought like a candle or something for my mom, whatever it was, come back, and I beat my mom home, and I look in the front yard, and the cat's gone. And I'm like, oh no, like I I heard that cats go to a secluded place to die, and I'm thinking, oh man, I think Kitty's on her last leg here, Um, literally. So I kind of like, kind of in that pickle a little bit here, like wondering what to do. Mom comes home. And again, sinner saved by grace, I, I don't tell her the truth. She's wondering where Kitty is. I, you know, I just don't say anything. And a couple days go by, true story, a couple days go by, I'm about ready to go to school. It's pouring down rain. And I open the front door and Kitty is there on the front porch. And she's covered in mud. She's, you know, it's completely soaked from the rain. She limps into the house and my mom just goes crazy, like, oh, she's alive, she's saved, you know. And, and I'm like, yeah, and I still don't say anything. She takes the kitty to the vet, comes back, and the vet said, yeah, your cat must have gotten in a fight with some bigger animal and lost, and, you know, I think the cat will be okay. 
And even then, I still did not tell her the truth. Well, a couple years go by. This is where it gets, yeah, this is where it gets a little crazy. Um, our neighbor uh, knocks on the door and says, hey, your, your cat was on our front porch, and I've got something strange to, to say to you. This is the one year to the day of our 13-year-old who, who passed away. And it's exactly a year later, and we believe that our daughter's spirit, soul, is in your cat. Can we keep your cat? And it's like, you can't say no to that. Like, how do you, how do you what do you respond with? So we said, yeah, you, you can keep our cat, and, and we're walking back, and, and that's when I decided to tell my mom the truth of what happened, you know, a few years later with me running her over with my car. Say all that to say that Martin Luther's quote here is absolutely true. <laughs> to violate your conscience is not only right, but it's, it's also not very safe. I want to add something to that. It's also miserable. Like I was kind of wrestling, you probably can't tell, but I was wrestling with the guilt and the regret. It took me a few years, but wondering like, how do I reconcile this? Like I know the right thing to do, and yet I just couldn't bring myself to actually doing it. And I'm sure that as I'm telling this story, you're recalling uh, your own experience of violating your own conscience, going against your convictions, and making a very poor decision that probably turned out very badly for you, right? We've all been there. You know, it can lead you to being filled with that guilt, maybe losing sleep or losing your appetite. Well, our passage this morning, and that's a very long intro, but our passage this morning, I think, introduces us to someone whose conscience is absolutely conflicted. We have someone presented before us in John chapter 18 who knows the right thing to do, but just can't simply bring himself to actually doing it. I believe that there is no other passage in all of the Bible that presents us with such an inside look into someone whose conscience is so conflicted like this one. This morning, we are introduced to Governor Pontius Pilate, a man who has one of the most intriguing and perplexing and confusing conversations with Jesus in all of the Gospels. And he spends kind of a long time talking with Jesus here, and yet he's probably the most miserable person in all of the Gospels who has an encounter with Jesus. See, what we're going to see in this conversation is that Pilate cannot decide what to do with Jesus. His conscience is conflicted, and if it were up to Pilate, he would love to cast a no vote. He would love to remain kind of undecided. But he, just like Every single person in this room and every single person in the whole world only has two options when it comes to the claims of Jesus, that you can either accept him or you can reject him. There's no middle ground. There's no undecided. There's no kind of staying on the fence as it relates to Christ. In fact, I think that's one of the purposes of John's gospel. It's one of the main themes that we've seen all throughout John's great work In fact, the very purpose of John writing in John chapter 20 is these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. So John just states the purpose. I'm writing for this reason. I want you to believe. In essence, you can either believe or reject Jesus. And so one of the, I think, unique characteristics of John's gospel is he brings before us all of these different encounters and conversations that Jesus has with different characters. And they're all wrestling with the same question. 
They're all wrestling with, what will I do with Jesus? Nicodemus wrestled with that question in John chapter 3. The woman at the well wrestled with that question. The blind man in John chapter 9 wrestled with that question. All of Jesus' disciples and the religious leaders and the crowd and, and the official who Jesus healed his son, they're all wrestling with the same question that is now presented to Pontius Pilate, and it's what will you do with Jesus? And that same question is presented before you even this morning of what will you do with Jesus today? Well, our passage begins in verse 28. And we're told that the religious leaders bring Jesus finally before Pilate. We know that Jesus has endured multiple trials already with Annas and Caiaphas and the Sanhedrin. We know that these trials, some of them were illegal. Jesus was falsely accused. He was hit in the face. He was spat upon. And this was all being done throughout the middle of the night. Jesus is exhausted at this point in time. Historians say that they bring Jesus before Pilate sometime uh, between 3 a.m. and 6 a.m. with the anticipation that this Roman governor will execute Jesus. See, in this moment, the religious leaders, they need Pilate. They have no authority to actually kill Jesus, and so they need Pilate to kind of step up for them. And yet their relationship with Pilate is complicated at best. They do not like each other. Uh, Pilate has kind of stirred the pot with the Jewish people on more than one occasion. In fact, one example of that, he actually stole money from the temple treasury in order to build kind of some buildings and some different roadways. Pilate will put up different idols around the temple just to get the Jews a little bit furious with them. And even though the Jews hate Pilate, they absolutely need him in this moment. And Pilate loves every second of it. Pilate loves the fact that he's making them jump through these legal and political hoops, forcing them to recognize his power and his authority. Historians tell us that Pilate was a very insecure leader. He made poor decision after poor decision and yet still craved power and recognition. And we get to this point in verse 28, and there is just so much irony just dripping in this verse. If you notice here in verse 28, we're told that the religious leaders, they, they refuse to go inside the headquarters of where Pilate is. And they refuse to do that in order to keep themselves undefiled so that they can experience the Passover festivities. Now, what's ironic about that is that they're trying to keep themselves clean, yet all the while they're manipulating this Roman governor to, con, uh, to conduct this unjust murder of the one who is the true Passover. And so we're, we're basically taken into this inside kind of the headquarters of Pilate, and they basically need Pilate to make this decision of what to do with Jesus. I love how rich and just a masterful job John does with kind of creating the drama in this passage. I'm sure you noticed as Catherine was reading it that Pilate has to go from inside his headquarters to outside four different times. So he goes inside talking with Jesus, and then he moves outside to kind of share his verdict with the Jewish people four different times, in, out, in, out. And each time you're kind of on the edge of your seat wondering, what will Pilate do with Jesus? There, there's so much suspense and drama here. Well, the showdown begins in verses 33 through 40, where we see part one of Pilate's conversation with Jesus. 
And it's so interesting. This is so fascinating what Pilate and Jesus end up talking about. See, one thing that we're going to learn is that even though Jesus is the one who's on trial here, even though Jesus is the one who's, who's being interrogated, Pilate's asking Jesus eight different questions throughout this conversation, what we're going to see is that it is actually Pilate who is put on trial before Jesus. It is actually Jesus who is the one who is searching out the heart of Pilate because this is exactly what Jesus does with you and me. See, in this conversation, we see the, the central theme behind Pilate's questions has everything to do with the kingdom and the kingship of Jesus. It's the first question in verse 33. Pilate asks Jesus, are you king of the Jews? This question is really important. In fact, it's actually recorded in all four of the gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And yet the response from Jesus that's recorded is different in Matthew, Mark, and Luke compared to John. In Matthew, Mark, and Luke's account, the response that Jesus gives is very short. Just says, yes, it is as you say, and it moves on to Herod. But in our account, in John's gospel, John wants us to see the, the nature of Jesus's kingdom. And so John records and supplies a much more robust response by Jesus to this question, are you king of the Jews? Now, before Jesus responds to this question, he, he wants to ask a clarifying question. And so he asks Pilate, Pilate, is this what you believe? Or are other people saying this about me? See, you can begin to see Jesus start to invade and probe around the chambers of Pilate's heart. See, Jesus doesn't just want to talk about his universal kingdom. What Jesus wants to talk about is how his kingdom invades the kingdom and the throne that's in Pilate's heart in this moment. And we see in, in this conversation, Jesus' question even leads Pilate to asking Jesus a question. He says, am I a Jew? And you have to understand that there's something underneath that question. There's a, there's a more important question that's somewhat implied where Pilate's asking Jesus, Jesus, are you telling me that you're my king? Are you saying that I need to submit to you, that you're the one true king? And so in this moment right here, we can even see Jesus is starting to, to dance around that space in Pilate's heart, beginning to kind of draw him out. Now, no surprise, Pilate does not want Jesus in this space of his own heart at all. And so he, he pushes back. He tells Jesus, look, Jesus, your own Jewish people handed you over to me. What have you done? Now, the irony in that response is that, like, Pilate hates the Jews. He, he doesn't like them at all, and yet he's forced to adopt their position on Jesus. This now leads Jesus to actually explaining the nature of his kingdom and what Jesus talks about in his response is he doesn't talk about the physical territory of his kingdom, but Jesus talks about his reign and his authority. Jesus says, my kingdom is not of this world. Now, I think it's in this point in time that Pilate has to now probe Jesus and figure out, is Jesus a threat to Rome? And so he asks Jesus, oh, you're a king, are you? And with that question, Jesus then goes in and explains the purpose of why he came to the earth, that he explains to Pilate that he has come to bear witness to the truth. Okay, now, we've seen this category of truth throughout John's gospel. This is not being used in an intellectual or, or philosophical sense. We know from John chapter 14, verse 6, Jesus declared, 
I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And so this statement here, Jesus is trying to reveal something to Pilate that he's been trying to reveal during his entire earthly ministry. Simply put, that Jesus is king and he is God. That he's come to reveal that, to testify, to bear witness about that. But then you get to the end of verse 37, this last phrase, and it feels like there's an invitation here. He says to, to Pilate, everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. It's almost like Jesus is saying to Pilate, Pilate, are you listening? Pilate, are, are you believing this truth that I am the king, that I am God? Now we get to this point in the the conversation where it's pretty evident that Pilate is not listening. Pilate is not agreeing with this truth. In fact, he, he ends the conversation by asking this rhetorical question, what is truth? And then he walks away. That Pilate at this moment may not believe that there is an answer to that question or that Jesus has the answer to that question. Now we get to verse 38, and this is where things get really interesting. In verse 38, Pilate concludes that Jesus is innocent. He concludes that there is no guilt in him. Pilate will actually say that again in chapter 19, verse 6. This becomes this reoccurring theme where for Pilate, what his conscience is telling him is that Jesus is innocent and that Jesus should be set free. But then you get to chapter 19, verse 1, and what's so interesting is that Pilate actually has Jesus flogged. Now, this doesn't make any sense to me how a Roman governor can conclude that there's no guilt in this man. This man's innocence, and yet we need to flog him. We can see the, the conflict within Pilate's conscience. He begins to violate his own conscience, and he has the Son of God flogged. Now, this flogging was a horrendous and brutal, brutal experience. They would actually call this type of flogging the pre-death death. That as the individuals on their way to becoming executed, they would get flogged and many would not even actually get to the execution of the cross because of how brutal this flogging was. What they would do is they would take the victim and they would tie his hands behind his back. They would get him on his knees and they would tie the individual to a pole. And the torturers would take these short wooden sticks and on the ends of these wooden sticks would be these uh, kind of these leather straps, and they were filled with sharp pieces of metal, lead, and bone. And the torturers would just unleash their fury upon the victim's back. The beatings were so bad that many would die from them. In fact, on many occasions, the, the skin from the back would be actually ripped out, and so you could actually see some of the organs and arteries. Pilate says, I find no guilt within him. Go ahead and flog him. Makes no sense what he's doing here and what he's trying to decide about Jesus. The cruelty in verse 1 is followed by mockery in verses 2 and 3. The soldiers who take these thorns, which historians say are, are about 12 inches long, and they make this, this crown out of them, and they, they shove it on Jesus' skull. They take this purple robe, they wrap him around in it, trying to dress him up as, 
as a king in mockery. They say, hail king of the Jews. In Matthew's account, they're actually hitting Jesus at this point in time. And you get to this scene here. And we've been traveling through John's gospel. And, and you think, for what? Why are they doing this? Why flog Jesus? Why beat him? Why mock him? What did Jesus do? For, he healed a blind man? He caused Lazarus to come out from the grave? That he healed the official's sick son? On what basis do they find it right to flog and beat and mock him and spit in his face? This is the one who spoke and the world came into existence. This is the one who speaks and the demons obey. This is the one who commands the sun when to rise and when to set. And yet we see the son of God subject himself to this. Pilate goes on in verse 4 and once more comes out and says to the Jews, look, I'm bringing him out, yet I find no guilt within him. And just let him go then, Pilate. Let, let him free. And yet he doesn't. And the next couple of verses, the way the text portrays this makes you want to scream. We know how the story ends, but when you get to verses 4 and 5, Pilate brings Jesus out upon the platform here. And you have to understand, like, this is, this is the Lord of glory. This is the eternal one, Son of God, who has been beaten and bloodied and mocked. He's got the spit of the soldiers probably still in his beard at this moment. And Pilate has the audacity to bring Jesus before the crowd and say, behold the man. You have to understand, there, there's a little bit of, of a mockery in Pilate's voice there. He's basically telling the Jews, this is the man that you're so afraid of? This man is powerless. We've just beaten him. He's no threat to Rome. Look at the man, Pilate says. And yes, that's actually a good statement by Pilate. Behold this man. Pilate, you behold this man. This man who's been beaten and mocked. This man of sorrows who's acquainted with griefs. But this man is not a pathetic man. Like we know Jesus, we know the Son of God who in a moment could have called 12 legions of angels and this moment could have been all over with. And Jesus has all power, all authority. Everyone obeys Jesus when he wants to. And yet we see Jesus, he goes down this road of suffering. He subjects himself to this. But this morning, do you know why he did this? Do you know why Jesus endures this flogging and in just a couple of minutes gets up on a cross and dies? Do you know why this morning that he does this for you? Jesus goes through all of this for you. And look at me this morning. He does this for the real you. Like, you know the you I'm talking about. Like, you know the kind of person that you really are, just as I know the kind of person that I really am. You know the wickedness that's in your heart. You know the sin that you struggle with and the temptations that you face. That sometimes we kind of prop ourselves up and we might appear more godly than what we actually are, but Jesus knows all of the hidden corners of our hearts and our lives, and yet he goes to the cross and he goes through this flogging because of his love for you. That it's God's loving kindness that draws you into repentance and into salvation. You need to be reminded this morning that as Jesus goes through this flogging and the beatings and the mockery, 
that he had your face in his mind, that he thought of you, he thought of all of your sin. Author of Hebrews in chapter 12 says, Jesus, for the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross. What joy was that? It was the joy of having sinners who deserve the wrath of God, the punishment and the penalty of God be rescued because he took their place. Like this is the Jesus that John is presenting with us. This is the Jesus who is taking the place of sinners. Like that's one thing that John doesn't want us to miss throughout his gospel, the the substitutionary nature of Jesus' death. Out of all the Gospels, John highlights that reality more than Matthew, Mark, and Luke, that Jesus took your place. He was your substitute on the cross. And John does this in all kinds of different ways, some very, very powerful but subtle ways. Let me give you one example. We we get to the end of John chapter 18, and John does something quite strange in the narrative of Jesus getting to the cross. He drops in this random character named Barabbas. And it almost feels like it is coming out of nowhere. You get to the end of 18, and we find that that Barabbas is this robber. He is this murderer. He's the one who led a revolt against Rome. We don't know a lot about him. It, it, It does feel like almost like a distraction from Jesus getting to the cross. But again, I think John is including this here because he he wants to highlight something very powerful for us to see. That this picture here in the John chapter 18 is Pilate is standing on his platform and he has these two men who are both headed to become executed. And yet it was the custom of the Jews during the Passover for Pilate to release one Jew at this time. And so he holds up these two men and he basically asks the crowd of Jews, which one do you want? Which one should be released? And it's absolutely astounding to read this because There should be no contest here. Like, Barabbas is the one who's killed people. Barabbas is the one who deserves this kind of death. And yet Jesus has done nothing wrong. Jesus is the sinless one. Jesus is the one who's healed people, who's shown compassion to person after person. He holds these two men up, and the crowd is is yelling in response, give us Barabbas. We, We want Barabbas to be set free. And presumably the Roman soldiers go and they take the keys and, and they unshackle the chains from Barabbas' hands and feet and they, they let him walk free. It's unbelievable to, to see what kind of interaction that must have been like, what, what Barabbas must have thought. We don't have it in the account here of, of Barabbas turning to faith in Jesus or even thanking Jesus, and yet that was all part of God's plan. I think what, what's going on here is, is the symbolism that we see, the, the substitutionary reality of Jesus taking the place of sinners is physically demonstrated here in the life of Barabbas. See, do you know who Barabbas actually is in this passage? Barabbas is you. Barabbas is me. This is us. See, Jesus goes through this, and the beautiful reality is Jesus knew that the father could only treat Barabbas like Jesus if Jesus was treated like Barabbas. And look, that's the beauty of the gospel. That's the wonder that, that any of us are saved. It's the fact that Jesus stepped in and took our 
place. See, I wonder for Pilate or for Barabbas if he thought that it was Pilate who set him free, or the, or the crowd that set him free. No, 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 it was God who set him free. I think it's in, in this point of John's gospel where he's trying to make it abundantly clear that we are not the ones that save ourselves. Like, remember, John is writing to predominantly a Jewish audience, and for the Jews at this time, like, they had the covenants, they had the law, they, they were descendants of Abraham. They thought, man, if, if we could just keep and hold to the law based on our own morality, then we'll get into heaven. God will accept us. God will love us. I think John is trying to show us here that, no, 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 it's Jesus who takes our place, not our own good works that saves us. And yet that, that mindset that, that sometimes we can struggle with is something that John is trying to show us is the opposite of the gospel. See, sometimes we think that it's our good works, it's our morality that, that makes God love us or makes God accept us into heaven. That, that if I can just work hard enough, if I can just perform well enough spiritually, then God will bless me, God will give me favor, God will allow me into heaven. If I just grit my teeth and avoid sin and follow what the Bible says, then I will get into heaven. And sometimes that mindset kind of is created because of somewhat of our upbringing where we think if I work hard in school, I'm rewarded. If I work hard in my job, I'm rewarded. If I work hard in my relationships, I'm rewarded. If I work hard in my physical appearance, I'm rewarded. And we take that mindset, and sometimes it, it trickles into our relationship with God, where spiritually we say, God, if I work hard for you spiritually and morally and religiously, then you will reward me with your love. You will reward me with heaven. And John would say to us this morning that that is an anti-gospel mentality that will end your life in a similar way as Pilate's. That that mindset will not save you. There's nothing within ourselves that will save us. Our own willpower will not save us. Our own morality, our own discipline, our own dedication, our own ability to, to do what is right. None of those things will save us. There's only one. There's only one that will save us. There's only one that took our place. There's only one that, that stepped in and took our flogging there's only one that will get up on a cross just hours from here and pay the penalty for our sin, and his name is Jesus Christ. That his blood is so sufficient to save us from all of our sin, all of our shame, if we trust and believe in him. Look, I don't know if you know this, but our greatest challenge in this life is not our morality. Our greatest challenge is not our willpower and our discipline and our ability to do what is right. Our greatest challenge is do you believe and trust in the gospel of Jesus Christ? Do you believe in the good news that Jesus died in your place because you are a sinner? Like, Do you believe that there is a God whose love is so deep so high, so wide, so transformative, so unconditional that he knows all of the messiness of your life and yet still sent his one and only son to save you and redeem you and to give you forgiveness and eternal life. Do you believe that? 
Pilate says, behold the man. Yes, no truer words were ever spoken by Pilate. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Jewish leaders are not content at this point in time in the story. The Jewish leaders who are shouting at this moment, crucify, crucify. There's no ounce of sympathy. They're hiding behind their robes of religion. They tell Pilate, essentially, you've done good so far. You've flogged him. Now let's take him all the way. Let's finish him by executing him. And Pilate responds in verse 6, again, saying, I find no guilt within him. You crucify him. But then we find Pilate and Jesus having kind of round two in their discussion in verses 9 through 11. This conversation now is centered on Jesus' origin and Jesus' own authority. And yet he finishes that conversation in verse 12, comes to the conclusion, I've got to release Jesus. In Matthew's account, it's around this time that, that Pilate's wife tells Pilate, have nothing to do with Jesus. He's innocent. I've been having nightmares about him. And yet, unfortunately for Pilate, it's too late. The Jewish people play the trump card in verse 12, and they basically say, look, you've got to, you've got to crucify Jesus or else you're no friend of Caesar's. And that provoked this fear within Pilate. He can't afford another mishandled situation with the Jews. So he brings Jesus out. He sits on the seat of judgment at the stone pavement, and he gives his verdict. John notes for us just something related to time here, that it was around the the day of preparation for the Passover. This is the point in time in which all these lambs were being slaughtered for for the Passover festivities. So you can imagine kind of the lingering smell of blood that was in the air as Pilate brings out the true Passover who's been beaten, who's bloodied, and he gives his verdict, and he says, here is your king, and he delivers him over to be crucified. That's Pilate's decision, Pilate's choice of what to do with Jesus. He rejects Jesus. As we close this morning, just want to ask Pilate a question. If we had Pilate up here on stage, as we did Peter last week, We said, Pilate, what would you do over again? What advice would you give us today? Pilate, I think, would would warn us, at least some of us in this room who have not made a decision to accept Jesus, he would challenge us that it is impossible to stay neutral towards Jesus. That he would present this question that John has presented us with almost every single week of what will you do with King Jesus? Will you accept him? Will you trust in him? Will you put your faith in him to save you and not in your good works? Or will you reject him and trust in yourself? Look, that's the most important decision that you could ever make in your life. And it would be my prayer, my hope that today, for some who have not made that decision, maybe you're on the fence today, that today would be the day of your salvation where you would understand that there is a God who loves you so There is a God who stepped in and took your place and your punishment in order to remove your sins as far as the east is from the west and that you would trust in him with your whole life and that you would experience forgiveness, that you would experience what it's like to be truly loved unconditionally 
by a God who died for you and rose again. We would love for you to make that decision to trust in Jesus today. And for those of us who have made that decision, you have trusted in him. Look how great and amazing Jesus is. Look how amazing that Jesus knows all of your stuff, and yet he still goes and he's flogged and he's crucified. That as we prepare our hearts for Thanksgiving this Thursday, what more could we be thankful for? For the one who gave up his entire life to go through this torture in order to bring us near to him. Let our hearts be full of thanks this week as we remember Christ's sacrifice. Look, what can wash away my sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. What can make me whole again? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Oh, precious is the flow that makes me white as snow. No other fount I know, nothing but the blood of Jesus. Praise him for that. God, we thank you so much for King Jesus who stood before Pilate, who was mocked, who was questioned, who was falsely accused, who was tortured and sat there and took it because of the love he has for us. Oh God, help us to never get over that. Help us to never question the fact that you are for us and not against us. God, help us to understand that you, even now today, are wooing people to yourself. God, I pray for those who are feeling the Spirit move in their heart and are wondering, what is that within me? God, would you give them faith generously? Would you give them, Lord, repentance to turn from their sins and to trust in Jesus and Jesus alone for their salvation? God, we love you. We are forever thankful for you. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.